May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants, while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. May the Father of all mercies scatter light and not darkness in our paths, and make us all in our several vocations useful here, and in his own due time and way, everlastingly happy. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 187, George Washington's favorite Bible verse. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. What was George Washington's favorite Bible verse? The answer, according to the Mount Vernon website, can be discovered in a phrase found throughout Washington's correspondence. Quote, Under their vine and fig tree is a phrase quoted in the Hebrew Scriptures in three different places. Micah 4.4, 1 Kings 4.25, and Zechariah 3.10. George Washington used this phrase multiple times in correspondence throughout his life, and one can find Washington reference it almost 50 times. Of the three passages, it is most likely that he was citing Micah 4.4 in his writings. The section states, But they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid. The phrase refers to the independence of the peasant farmer who was freed from military oppression. In the biblical passage, there is a juxtaposition of the simple life with that of royalty or the state. Thus, it would seem that Washington's use of vine and fig tree in its full context would be an appropriate message in the setting of the American Revolution and the founding of the United States. In addition, the website continues, Washington's references to vine and fig tree are often connected to his fondness for Mount Vernon, his own personal vine and fig tree. For example, the phrase is utilized in reference to Mount Vernon in Washington's letter to Dr. James Anderson in 1797. The phrase was, however, utilized in differing contexts during the time period. For example, the phrase vine and fig tree was even connected to tolerance of immigration to America. A reference to this effect can be found in a 1787 issue of the New York Journal, alluding to the idea of the oppressed of other nations having a place to go for refuge. The phrase is also notably found in a well-known letter that Washington wrote to the Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island. End quote. Thus, the fourth verse of the fourth chapter of Micah is George Washington's favorite verse. And as we ponder the book of Micah, we would do well to consider its usage by Washington and the part that it played in Washington's correspondence with America's Jews. For I hope to show that this correspondence is an enduring testament to the impact of the Hebrew Bible on America. The opening of the book of Micah is akin to that of Isaiah and allows us to understand that, like Isaiah, Micah seeks to describe the descent of Assyria upon northern Israel and southern Judah. Chapter 1. The verse of the Lord that came to Micah the Morashlite in the days of Yotam, Ahaz, and Chizkiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains shall be molten under him, and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. For the transgression of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. This description of disaster and of Israel's sin continues for several chapters. And then, another obvious parallel to Isaiah appears, a vision of the end of days. Micah's fourth chapter begins as follows. But in the end of days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob and he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. For the Torah shall go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. These three verses are akin to Isaiah. 
But then the next verse is different from the parallel prophecy. Verse 4, And they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. This is Micah 4.4, a vision of peace and security for Israel in the end of days. This is Washington's favorite verse, and we must now see how he used it in his correspondence with American Jewry. Washington was sworn into the presidency in April of 1789, and several different faith communities in America immediately wrote to congratulate the president. But the Jewish community did not get its act together. I wrote him quite late and ultimately sent him three different letters. We will look at two of them and at Washington's replies. In May of 1790, a good year after Washington's presidency began, the Jews of Savannah wrote to Washington to congratulate him. The letter was written by Levi Sheftal, who with his brother Mordecai was a lay leader of Jewish Georgians. The letter began, quote, Sir, we have long been anxious of congratulating you on your appointment by unanimous approbation to the presidential dignity of this country and of testifying our unbounded confidence in your integrity and unblemished virtue. Yet, however exalted the station you now fill, it is still not equal to the merit of your heroic services through an arduous and dangerous conflict which has embosomed you in the hearts of her citizens. Our eccentric situation added to a diffidence founded on the most profound respect has thus long prevented our address. End quote. In other words, the Jews of Savannah are saying, you might be wondering why you haven't heard from American Jewry for a year since becoming president. It's because, they write, we respect you too much and due to our diffidence, we were a little afraid to write you. The letter continues, quote, Yet the delay has realized anticipation, giving us an opportunity of presenting our grateful acknowledgments for the benedictions of heaven through the energy of federal influence and the equity of your administration. Your unexampled liberality and extensive philanthropy have dispelled that cloud of bigotry and superstition which has long as a veil shaded religion, unriveted the fetters of enthusiasm, enfranchised us with all the privileges and immunities of free citizens, and initiated us into the grand mass of legislative mechanism, end quote. In other words, the Jews of Savannah are taking pains in their congratulations to say, it's too bad we wrote you so late, but we have been at least now able to see in the unfolding of your administration the equality with which you have treated everyone. Now in responding, all Washington needed to do was to thank them politely. But Washington did much more than that. Washington assured Savannah's jury that he took no insult in the lateness of the correspondence, and then he continued as follows, quote, I rejoice that a spirit of liberality and philanthropy is so much more prevalent than it formerly was among the enlightened nations of the earth, and that your brethren will benefit thereby in proportion as it shall become still more extensive. End quote. Washington thus means to emphasize that even as Jews have been granted equality at the federal level, he knows that not all state positions are yet open to them, and he hopes that they soon will be. Washington knows that Jews will use this letter, publicize it, to lobby for equality across the board. He seeks to help them to do so. And then, in the final paragraph, Washington writes words which are, I think, among the most extraordinary in American Jewish history. Quote, May the same wonder-working deity, who long since delivering the Hebrews from their Egyptian oppressors, planted them in the Promised Land, whose providential agency has lately been conspicuous in establishing these United States as an independent nation, still continue to water them with the dews of heaven and to make the inhabitants of every denomination participate in the temporal and spiritual blessings of that people whose God is the God of the Bible. And Washington here uses instead of the phrase, the God of the Bible, a version of the Hebrew name of God that Jews do not pronounce. That is how the letter ends. Washington then is doing much more than responding to a letter. He is seeking to make the Jews of America feel as if they truly belong 
And so what he tells them is that the God who performed miracles for you in the Exodus is the same God that performed miracles for us. And Washington also adds that this God who blessed you in the past is blessing you still. Washington is saying that the Hebrew Bible inspires America. The story of the Exodus inspires America. And he is adding, I am thinking of the inspiration of the Hebrew Bible in my welcome to you. That was Washington's letter to Savannah's Jews. Then, in August of 1790, the President of the United States paid a visit to Newport, Rhode Island, and there received a letter from the Jewish community's lay leader, Moses Satius. Satius wrote that, quote, Deprived as we heretofore have been of the invaluable rights of free citizens, we now, with a deep sense of gratitude to the Almighty Disposer of all events, behold a government erected by the majesty of the people, a government which to bigotry gives no sanction, to persecution no assistance but generously affording to all liberty of conscience and immunities of citizenship, deeming everyone of whatever nation, tongue, or language equal parts of the great governmental machine. This so ample and extensive federal union whose basis is philanthropy, mutual confidence, and public virtue, we cannot but acknowledge to be the work of the great God who ruleth in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, doing whatever seemeth him good. Washington responded immediately the very next day, and he wrote in part, quote, the citizens of the United States of America have a right to applaud themselves for having given to mankind examples of an enlarged and liberal policy, a policy worthy of imitation. All possess alike liberty of conscience and immunities of citizenship. It is now no more that toleration is spoken of as if it was by the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights. For happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. End quote. The most famous phrase in Washington's response here is his description of the American government as one which gives to bigotry no sanction. But as you have heard, it was Moses Satius that first composed those words. But Washington adds a sentence of his own prior to this phrase. And that is, it is now no more that toleration is spoken of as if it was by the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights. Washington is saying that perhaps in certain other countries you were tolerated, and that may have been a blessing, considering the alternative. But he is emphasizing that the watchword of America is not religious toleration. We are going much further than that. We are embracing equality. You are not here, he is saying to the Jews, because we are allowing you to be. You deserve to be here just as much as us. This is the sentence that Washington adds, and it is exquisite. Now, at this point, it seems that the nature of these two letters are different. In one, Washington references biblical miracles, while in the other, he describes political equality. One is about theology, the other is about politics. But then, then Washington concluded his letter to Newport's Jews as follows. May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. May the Father of all mercies scatter light and not darkness in our paths, and make us all in our several vocations useful here, and in his own due time and way, everlastingly happy. This, of course, is an allusion to Micah chapter 4, verse 4. And though, of course, Washington is not himself describing the end of days, he is paraphrasing a verse that does so. One can therefore say that in his Savannah letter, Washington references the Exodus, the beginning of biblical Israel's national history. And then, in his words to Newport's Jews, he alludes to Micah's description of 
the ultimate conclusion of biblical Israel's history, the end of days and the redemption of the world. The two work together in tandem, and taken as one, remind us how the founders were often inspired by the Hebrew Bible, and how this inspiration fueled their embrace of American Jewry. We owe it to our American Jewish predecessors, as well as to the American founders, to continue to reflect the faith of the Hebrew Bible that Washington himself clearly so ardently admired. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.